Welcome to episode 151 of the Energy Talks podcast. I'm energy and climate journalist Markham Hislop. Today I'm going to be talking to former U.S. Special Envoy for the Sahal and Great Lakes regions of Africa, J. Peter Pham, who recently wrote an op-ed titled A Wake-Up Call for Green Energy Dreams that outlined how the United States can wean itself from dependence on China and other rivals for critical minerals that power our renewable energy infrastructure. Ambassador Pham is a distinguished fellow with the Atlantic Council and a senior advisor at the Kroc Institute for Tech Diplomacy. So welcome to the interview, Peter. Thank you, Markham. Pleasure to be with you. Now, this is before we get into the nuts and bolts of what you laid out in your op-ed, I want to back up a little bit. And because I don't think this is a bit of a hobby horse of mine, and, and so listeners have heard me talk about this uh, a fair amount. I don't think Canadians understand how fast the, uh, the the global energy system is changing. And it's accelerated. Uh, it was accelerating up to 2020. Then the shock of the pandemic, followed by the 2022 invasion of Ukraine by Russia, which created a global energy crisis. And the recognition, I think, in 2022, it's not like the Americans, it's not like Joe Biden woke up one day in the White House and and realized this, uh, because this has been an ongoing issue. But the formal recognition in the announcement of the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act, that China has a huge lead on the United States in clean energy technology and clean energy industry. And that's really important because... As the IEA says, well, for, oh, now we have, first of all, we had a, a switch from uh, fossil fuels to clean energy well underway. Now we have to have an industrial transformation because we have to make all that stuff. We have to make wind turbines and solar panels and batteries and all of that. And that's part of what your, your op-ed addressed. So one of the reasons why I was eager to talk to you is, I, you know, you're kind of plugged into that government apparatus in in Washington, what's the take there about how quickly the global energy system and the global economy is now changing? Well, thanks, Markham. Uh, I, I would quibble with one point. I would say China doesn't have a lead in technology. The best technology, the cutting edge technology still is the United States and our main partners in North America and Europe. Now, China steals a lot of technology, but they have an edge in manufacturing and critically uh, in minerals and metals processing. And that's that's where their real advantage is. And that's what we need to be concerned about. To your question, how quickly are things changing? Well, if we have the if we take the assurances or commitments made by world leaders, whether in Paris or most recently the COP27 meeting uh, in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, uh, at the end of last year, in order to limit the uh, global warming to the 1.5 degrees Celsius uh, target by 2050, uh, we have to drastically reduce the carbon footprint. And that's going to require, and this is what I think most people fail to appreciate, an enormous uh, push into the minerals and metals necessary to do that. And I'm not sure we are investing enough. Uh, and even if we are, the investment were there, the pro, uh, investing not just in extraction, but processing 
and we may be in the uh, in the the haste to do this, uh, handing up significant advantage to China, which has very patiently, very strategically over the last several decades acquired a virtual chokehold uh, on uh, the refining and processing of the key elements uh, in the periodic table that we need if we're going to uh, not just engage in decarbonization or getting to net zero, but even continuing with uh, our current technology, all our smartphones, tablets, et cetera. Right. Uh, China has kind of emerged as the U.S. global superpower that it's competing with it used to be russia you and i are both old enough to remember the cold war uh and it seems like now china has replaced russia as the u.s's uh, main competitor and i remember a comment that the president biden made in his 2020 campaign literature where he said now of course he was you know dissing president trump a little bit at that point and saying that trump had let china take a lead but that of course as you point out has been going on for better part of two decades didn't just creep up on us but he said we are no longer number one in these tech in in this in the industry the clean energy technology and he mentioned batteries and, and evs he said but i pledge that if you elect me uh we will be number one by 2030 and that always struck me because that is the kind of the level of ambition that we expect from americans and we haven't seen for a while and now we've seen the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act, which has set $369 billion for clean energy technology. We see the Science and Chips Act, $280 billion, which has plenty of uh, money for clean energy. We see the Bipartisan Infrastructure Investment Act, which has, I forget how many hundreds of billions, all together over a trillion dollars between now and 2030 that are going to be in, invested in various aspects of the clean energy uh, tech, uh, switch to clean energy and clean energy industry. To me, that signals the U.S. is back. It, it's serious about this. It's serious, uh, and I salute the commitment uh, that that uh, funding presents. But my argument is that uh, it's a commitment that's not realistic. And what I mean is not that the ambition is beyond us, but how it's spent. And this is where, you know, there are facts and there are darn facts, and then there's geology. Uh, for example, cobalt, absolutely essential at, for the technology we have today, absolutely essential for uh, electric vehicle batteries, for smartphones, uh, you name it. 70% of the world's cobalt is mined in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, where I used to be uh, part of the region I was responsible for. Uh, as U.S. Special Envoy for the Great Lakes. 70% of it is mined there in one country. Uh, uh, almost 80% of the cobalt in the world is processed in the People's Republic of China. Uh, you know, all the cobalt in North America, assuming our demand doesn't increase, and it has been increasing every single year for decades, assuming demand doesn't increase uh, and stay static, all the cobalt we have in North America would last us barely six, maybe seven years if we really stretched and did a little bit of recycling. So uh, we're, we're not gonna get to that bright future, even to the 2030 uh, date you, you cited, without 
concentrating on supply. We're, we're, we're not focused enough on securing supplies and supply chains. And that that's that that was my big point in the, the op-ed you cited. Right. And indeed it was. And and so let's talk about that because I've got a few observations here and questions for you. One of the things I've noticed uh, is the tremendous amount of innovation in the battery space and in the EV space and Tesla, for example. So uh, you mentioned that uh, in your op-ed that the Tesla Model Y needs six times the amount of minerals that would go into a, an internal combustion engine automobile. But just recently, Tesla announced that it's moving from 12 volt to 48 volt uh, electric architecture in its cars. Well, what that does is reduce the wire size and weight that requires all that copper, you know, by by about a th to about a third of, of what it is now. And now they they announced again just a few days ago that they're designing a critical minerals free electric motor. So what the, the point I'm getting to here, and we another another point I should mention. Moving from nickel, magnesium, co uh, cobalt batteries to iron uh, phosphate, uh, lithium iron phosphate, again, engineers are aware of these problems of critical mineral shortages and engineering solutions to them. And and I not to say, I don't want to downplay the issue and not say this isn't, the, the issue that you raise is not serious, because of course it is, but one of the ways we can we can address it is to require less of those in the technologies that we're using. What, what what do you think of that argument? Well, I think technology improves. One should never underestimate human ingenuity, uh, especially when it's unleashed in in, uh, in free markets. So, you know that that is one should always be open to those game changers. On the other hand, as we all know, uh, Elon Musk and Tesla make many announcements, and not all of them bear bear true. So, one should always take that with a reservation. But you know, even if you know, talk about rare earths, for example, uh, the the most recent announcement you cited that Tesla's going to look for uh, a battery solution doesn't involve uh, rare earths. Uh, that would take maybe three, four percent of demand off the table if they were to successfully develop that technology. Uh, still leaves ninety five plus percent of the demand still to be met. So, uh, the same with, uh, you know, one can solve the issue for uh, with the battery for electric vehicles, but if we're going to build wind turbines, uh, if we're going to build solar, again, copper is still the, the, the preferred uh, metal for transmission lines. Uh, if we're going to electrify uh, the entire North American grid, certainly the United States grid is in desperate need of updating if it's going to bear the load that uh, electrification. So, uh, again, you know, I just as we solve a demand issue in one area, I think we're going to have other demand issues that we're not even talking about yet or necessarily, I'm sure very smart scientists are thinking about, but as policymakers are being thought of. So the point being, whatever model one chooses to adapt, we're running into a, uh, a question of critical shortage on the supply side. Yeah, and that's a perfectly fair argument. I, I mean, um, uh, it, you know, this has been getting some attention from policymakers and governments in the the last uh, couple of years. Uh, there have been last year there were meetings between the White House administration and uh, Canadian government officials uh, because Canada. And one of the reasons I'm interested in this story is because Canada has almost all of the critical mineral uh, minerals that are required 
for for that we're talking about here, with probably the exception of cobalt, has some, but not a not a lot. And um, most of the, the government of Canada now has a critical mineral strategy. Many uh, of the provincial governments have critical mineral strategy, and I'm thinking primarily of Alberta, BC, and Ontario, which all have significant mining industries. And I think uh, there is, and you make the point here, uh, that there are solutions to this. This uh, MOU you, you talked about with the uh, Af US Africa Leader Summit, maybe we'll get you to explain that. I mean, that's an area that you were you were responsible for. What can, what can you tell us about that MOU? Well, what the, uh, the MOU was to create a framework and it really needs to be threshed out in actual formal agreements, one has to emphasize. But to thresh out how uh, Africans can capture the value chain, because it's it, it's a win-win at least for Africa and for the the rest of the world if they can capture the value chain. Right now, the value chain is cap. The minerals come out of Africa, and Africans aren't necessarily benefiting from the extraction of minerals from under their soil. It's being shipped to China, which to me is a great irony because. Uh, if you look at some of the places where cobalt, uh, iron, copper, uh, uh, and other minerals are mined in Africa, in the middle of the continent, the Congo, Zambia, landlocked, largely landlocked Congo as a tiny outlet to the sea in the West, then they're put on trucks, diesel trucks, and you can go to the borders of Congo or the Zambia and you see miles, hundreds of trucks trying to clear the border. Diesel trucks, a thousand miles to the ports on the Indian Ocean, put on boats uh, thousands of miles back to China for processing. Uh, how green is that, uh, all that diesel uh, uh, fuel, use, fossil fuel use? Then uh, China captures the processing and creates these choke points. If Africa is enabled through this MOU and others uh, to capture the value chain, to do the processing largely in Africa and then ship you know, to whoever the buyer is in the world and should be an open market, uh, that de-risks for countries like the United States, Canada, our partners and friends in Europe, Australia and others, Japan, uh, it de-risks the choke point. China no, would no longer control that 80% of processing. Uh, uh, and that's, that's the key, is to de-risk it for everyone. Does China uh, have, has it captured the, that uh, uh, supply chain because it invested in those countries, it invested in mineral extraction and and the whatever other supply chains are required to support it. Well, uh, let me uh, talk about concrete examples. Uh, for example, cobalt. China invested in acquired licenses to mine cobalt in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, for example. But it was part of deals with the former regime, deals that by now looking at scrutiny were not honored. For example, in the Congo. The deal was China would extract $6 billion worth of cobalt in exchange for which they would build, the Chinese company that signed the deal with uh, Peristatal, would build $6.8 billion worth of infrastructure for the Congo, which desperately needs it. Well, no one quite knows how much was extracted uh, because there were not systems in place to control that. Uh, but one is absolutely certain there is not a billion dollars, much less $6.8 billion in uh, infrastructure built in the Congo 
in the time of that contract, which is why there's an ongoing dispute actually with the government of the Congo blocking further exports uh, from that particular uh, Chinese-controlled mine until this issue is resolved. So uh, they invested in a way, they, they, they got licenses is probably better than saying they invested uh, because investment is usually a two-way street. So in this case, if I understand you correctly, Peter, what you're arguing here is that these kinds of critical minerals in Africa, the extraction of them, it needs to go from being dominated by China, which has been given these licenses and maybe hasn't followed through on all of the conditions they agreed to, and it needs to go into a free market where China can buy it or U.S. can buy it or Europe can buy it, but and that would benefit Africa because it would get the investment that it needs and the jobs and infrastructure and so on. But it would also, uh, it would also open up the supply chain where, so the various supply chains so that the Chinese can't uh, use it these, you know, strategically against other countries. Have I got that argument correct? Yes, exactly. I mean, we all got a lesson in this in 2010 when uh, there was an incident in uh, the Sakaku Islands, uh, Japanese islands, very close to China, involving a Japanese Coast Guard vessel and a Chinese fishing, uh, aggressive fishing vessel. Uh, at the, after this incident, all of a sudden, although no embargo was declared, Japanese businesses couldn't source uh, key rare earth elements that went into uh, electric components, etc. And Japan was frozen out of that and significant dislocation occurred within the, the marketplace uh, because of that. Uh, you know, you talked earlier about the Cold War and the confrontation with the Soviet Union back in the day. The free world back in the Cold War was not reliant uh, on the Soviet Union in the way that we are currently reliant on China for, for, for key uh, prim primary commodities that go into our day-to-day -day life. And that's that's what makes it very, very different from the old adversary that uh, that we won the Cold War with. Yeah, I, I can't show it on a podcast, obviously, but I have a, a chart on my computer that Bloomberg NEF produced that shows the amount of uh, the uh, processing capacity, the refining capacity for all of the various minerals. So, and the, the idea here is that you take minerals, then you refine them and process them into battery metals. And then the battery metals go in and become part of the, the battery cell manufacturing. And then they get assembled into a, into a battery pack. And the, the percentage, I think it's, is 80, when you average it out on the refining and processing side, it's 80% of work global capacity is controlled right. by China. Yeah, and it's probably even higher than that because, for example, uh, most the, the largest supplier of nickel in uh, into uh, the world markets is Indonesia. And if you look at who owns the companies that are actually operating in Indonesia and processing even in Indonesia, uh, many of them are Chinese parastatals. And so the the number is probably higher. I'm, uh, if you're worth you're th we're thinking about the same uh, Bloomberg NEF. Uh, graphic, uh, uh, I would argue probably that number is the baseline and not the the ceiling on that. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Now let's talk about uh, the mineral security partnership that you mentioned in your op-ed. And the partnership consists of Australia, Canada, Finland, France, Germany, Japan, South Korea, Sweden, UK, the US, and the European Commission. Tell us about this partnership. Well, it's uh, it's somewhat of, if you will, a the buyer a buyers club. Uh, uh, 
key countries in the free world who are dependent for our critical technology, uh, for our innovation and even ordinary uh, uses uh, uh, for minerals and to pool our resources, uh, ensure environmental, social and governance best practices. Uh, so it's part of the equation. Uh, but what needs to be done, and I think very importantly, is that we don't need to also engage with the suppliers. I mean, in a way, we've got a buyer's club set up, but the buyer's club needs a counterpart, a supplier's club, if you will, of countries that actually produce these. Because right now, it's a buyer's club facing Chinese processors uh, in reality. Uh, and that's where the MOU we spoke about with US, Zambia, and the Democratic Republic of Congo to help uh, build up an African value chain in processing is a first step. It's one of many that could be taken to help the countries that actually provide us with this, uh, these critical elements, these critical minerals for our, uh, for our future uh, can also benefit from that. Now, we've talked a lot about Africa supplying these critical minerals. And, and I've mentioned the fact that Canada has a critical mineral strategy. And not only that, it has some very large mining companies. Uh, we have a lot of experience in refining and smelting. If there is any uh, domestic uh, supplier of critical minerals and battery metals, Canada would just seem to be the the prime candidate. Uh, and, we're, I I mean, can and Canada, uh, you know, benefits quite directly from the legislation that you mentioned. Uh, you know, the Inflation Reduction Act, for example, favors. Uh, uh, in its tax credit structures. Now, the rules are being written as we speak, so uh, it's presumptuous to talk about what they will be, but uh, based on what the legislation outlines, certainly Canada, because of our uh, trade agreements, benefits uh, for the same tax credit uh, into the sourcing. Uh, uh, and in fact, some of our European friends uh, feel a little left out, which is why <laughs> European Commission uh, President yes, von der Leyen was in Washington last week to meet with President Biden. Yes, they, yes, they do feel left out. And of course, you know, not only are they, and, and as do some of the uh, Asia Pacific countries like uh, Japan and Korea, uh, South Korea. Uh, so the uh, one of the... I was recently involved in a project where this is a freelance writing project for me as a journalist, uh, where I helped the Alberta Federation of Labor come up with a clean energy strategy for Alberta. And one of the seven missions that we identified was uh, not only building a critical mineral mining capacity in Alberta, but right now, uh, because of the most of the refining and processing capacity is in uh, is in China, and there's so little of it in the U.S., or in North America, it seems like this is, it's a, who gets to the table first? Which which jurisdiction, which companies are prepared to come forward with a plan, come forward with capital investment, get these projects off the ground, uh, gets a first mover advantage? W would, you, would you agree? Very much so. And, and that's the key is to get the processing. Uh, and per, And to get to the processing, we've got to get the permitting. And it can't, it can't be the, you know, that, you know, the typical industry standard where to get a mine approved, it takes seven years. Uh, and God knows uh, how long it takes to get a processing plant approved. Now, the European Union has come up with some kind of interesting benchmarks. Uh, 
it'll be telling whether they can meet it. But the the stated ambition is to get mines approved in no more than 24 months and processing plants in 12. Uh, you know, I I wish them well and I hope they can do it. It'd be good for all of us. Uh, you know, I, I'm you know you know no, a little bit of skepticism, but I think that's the, that's the key is to get these things approved. Now, some basic processing, and this is the I think can be done inside whether where the mining is, whether it be in makes the most sense. Uh, it's also the greenest to uh, to do it in site, uh, you know, close to where it's mined, whether the mines in Canada, whether it's in Africa, whether it's in Latin America uh, somewhere. But then the final stages, and certainly the 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 more technologically complex uh, building of actual batteries. I think for now at least, it's going to have to be in more developed countries uh, just because of labor uh, force skills, et cetera. Right. I mean, that, that Canada and the U.S. have a very integrated automotive industry. Uh, not only the uh, automotive plants in, in Canada that were integrated. I mean, we had the 1964 Auto Pact that has basically set the structure for the industry over the last you know 60 years. Uh, but also there's the supply chains. There are over 700 uh, parts suppliers to the North American industry located in, in Ontario, some of them, you know, huge like Magna, uh, for, in for instance. So it, what it seems like there's the opportunity here is to somewhere in Canada, the, well, I mean, there'll be multiple provinces that will set up critical minerals mining. That I think that is this way it looks like it's going to develop. And then the question is, who's going to set up the the refining process? Will it, will it, you know three or four provinces do it, or will it be one province that does it? And you know, how is that all going to work? And then it's going to you know ship the battery metals out east, either to the American market or to the Ontario market. I mean, that kind of that that looks like the way. Things are going to be structured, if I understand this correctly. Yes, and 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 you know the Inflation Reduction Act in the U.S. encourages it because the uh, it requires that most of the metals that go into uh, the uh, the batteries be from sourced to countries uh, that we have a free trade agreement with. However, that's to be defined. But certainly, uh, uh, Canada. Uh, qualifies hands down. Some of our other partners will perhaps take a little bit of a, a legal fudge as the regulations are are being written. But, uh, you know, certainly uh, Canada stands to benefit uh, uh, from that relationship. Uh, indeed. So if we can back up again, uh, Peter, just to summarize uh, our, the conversation here, uh, China dominates uh, the critical minerals, uh, but most importantly, the metal battery metals processing uh, capacity in the world. Uh, the North America is led by the U.S. is determined to build its own critical uh, minerals mining sector and refining and processing sector. It looks like Canada and U.S. will, you know, like Canada will be a key partner in this for the for the U.S. And and I, I want to emphasize again to my Canadian listeners how committed the U.S. is to get on with this. Very much so, and and. I would add for, for those same listeners how important Canada is, not just in North America, but globally. Some of the key companies that are engaged in uh, mining in Africa uh, are uh, Canadian companies based in Canada, traded for the most part to the Toronto Exchange. You know, you know one of the, what will become one of the world's, it is already one of the world's largest copper mines and 
will probably in the next couple of years become the largest copper is a Canadian firm uh, that I'll call out because they're working in Congo, where we're talking about uh, Ivanhoe, uh, uh, based in Vancouver, if I'm not mistaken, uh, mining in the Congo, and largely, by the way, doing it uh, with renewables, for those who are concerned about that, uh, uh, with hydroelectric power, uh, extraordinary uh, site out there. And so Canada uh, brings a lot to the table. Uh, and I'm, you know, uh, not ashamed to say that. Uh, one final point, because you, you mentioned the Ivanhoe using hydroelectric in the in the Democratic Republic of Congo. One of the competitive, I've been arguing this for a long time, that basically, as, as we go through the energy transition, clean, abundant, reasonably priced electricity is going to be the foundation of the 22nd, uh, 21st century economy. So from your point of view, uh, given the fact that Canada, I think we're now at something like 80% uh, either emission-free or low emission between hydro and, and nuclear is like 77%. That's a, of our power, national power grid. Uh, that would seem to give Canada, when it comes to uh, both mining of the minerals and the processing and refining, a huge advantage. It 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 does, and it should even more so. I think we're we're entering that period. We're not the market is not fully matured. I think we're far from it, but I think maturing would be a good uh, description for uh, truly green uh, metals. Uh, uh, minerals are mined using renewable energy, or at least lower emission uh, uh, than you know conventional. Uh, mining has been to date. And I think the markets will pay a premium for that. And so, you know, that had another competitive uh, uh, advantage here. Well, Peter, look, this has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you very much for this. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.